0: You're listening to Crosspoint Community Church in LaGrange, Texas podcast. To learn more about Crosspoint Community Church, including service times and how you can connect, please visit CrosspointChurchTX.org. So hey, today we continue our series, Firm Foundations. We've been talking about the big ideas like God and Jesus and all this. And people were even like, hey, what are you preaching on? I'm like, Jesus? Like, yeah, I know. Um, Today we're going to talk about church. And what I want you to get, if nothing else, is that church is to be a community of people that love each other in such a way that we can stand back to back and encourage each other um, in life's good times and in life's most difficult times. And uh, I've got, you've actually, you've got, uh, there's, uh, this is a seven hour sermon. Um, that we're going to cram into like 30 minutes, okay? That's why you have like multiple pages of notes that you can take home. And I'm not going to hit everything in there so you can study on your own. But um, I want you to, to have some of that information to think about. Because church is an expression of Jesus and what Jesus' idea of community is here on earth. And um, so many churches are struggling. Many churches are dying. And um, I'm excited to be a part of this congregation where you guys were active and alive and live. Life change is happening not only here, but in in families, and legacies are being changed as we point people to Jesus. And so it's about you guys and us together being community and holding each other accountable in our faith. There's a book that was written about 20 years ago now called called Bowling Alone, and the author is a, a professor at Harvard. And he had done multiple years of study, and one of the things that came back from his study is that we as a community, especially in America, we have become more disconnected over the last few years. And this book obviously didn't even have COVID as a part of that. And so we know now even for more research and added things that COVID, what was already happening forced it even faster. We, In some ways, became more disconnected in 10 years than we had in one year. And so disconnectedness and a lack of community is a huge issue and concern in our world and our culture today. And so it impacts us in multiple ways. You see this playing out even in your own life by, hey, if you drive a commute of over 10 minutes you lose a capacity to have some community with other people. It's because you're in your car alone, you're doing this and so you're, every every 10 minutes that you're in your car commuting you lose an opportunity to be in community together. And we see that playing out and how many of us now don't get to have family meals together in the evening because we're going to and fro and trying to accomplish all these good things but we're missing out on some of the better things. And uh, Because community around the table is essential for us to, to know our spouse, to know our friends, to know our kids. So much of value and of life is expressed over the dinner table. And we've missing some of that. Um, It even tells us, Hey, if you just join one new community group in this next year, you have a 50% chance of living longer. That sounds pretty good. If you want a 50% chance for living longer, like I'm getting up there. And I'm like, hey, listen, like 50% chance next year sounds really good, right? And so, like, join a group, get in a group. Um, For every 10 minutes of TV that you watch... You're lessening your opportunity to be in community. So it's the one activity that you can do that actually lessens your social capacity. And you think about it. I mean, you do it. You binge watch. You do all these different things. And that's an alone activity. Um, you're not building community. And so we, as a community, need to be more community involved. And the reason the name of the book was even entitled Bowling Alone is because people still bowl. Actually, there's more people bowling now than in the 50s and 60s, which sounds weird to me. I'm like... It's not true. It can't be true. But what it is is there's less bowling leagues, but more people bowling alone. They're literally going to the bowling alley and bowling by themselves. And that is a symptom of our culture is that we do so many things by ourselves instead of in community. Community is essential to a church. Community is essential to community. As a community here, we have to have community. And so today I want to kind of dig into this big idea of church. And so the first question is this, is where did this idea of church come from? And lo and behold, it came from God. Surprised? No, you're okay. You know, none of y'all are surprised. Awesome. We'll get y'all some more coffee. All right, but church came from the, from God. It's his idea. You see in the old Testament, there's this really weird word called kahal. Everybody spit with me call. All right. And that's an assembly that God would call his people together in a kahal in an assembly so that he could talk to them and reveal himself to them. And so that's the first extension. That's the first expression that we see in scripture of an assembly together of a church. He then, as the people were moved from Egypt and they again to travel together as they escaped the egyptians god established a tabernacle he told moses hey i want to set up a tent so that people would know they can go to that tent and they can meet with me and i can reveal myself to them and they can pray to me he gave them a distinct place where they would know that he was present and so they established a tent and his tent would move with them wherever they were traveling along the way from slavery to freedom into the promised land. They had this tabernacle and God's presence was visible to them. And actually, as a matter of fact, even see in scripture that Moses would meet with God in the tabernacle and he would walk out and his countenance was changed. So was further confirmation for their people that God and Moses, when Moses was in there, God was there, then they could also go meet with him as well and they would worship together then also further along in in history we move from the tabernacle to the temple so we move from a tent to a fixed setting and then the temple Solomon built it Right, God commissioned Solomon to build it, and he built a small temple for the day. And it was um, in that place. There were different sections. And the most important section was the Holy of Holies. And inside of the Holy of Holies, they placed the Ark of the Covenant. And it was symbolically God's presence resided there. And so once a year, the priests would go in, and they would sacrifice, and they would have that in the Holy of Holies. There would be this this washing away of sins for the entire nation of Israel during that time. And then, after that is the synagogue. So people would, at a later date, there was the temple, but then also in towns and cities, there were these synagogues. So this would kind of be considered a synagogue. And then if we had a temple, it would be in somewhere like Houston. And so whenever there were important festivals or feasts, we would gather together and we would caravan together to go to Houston and we would do the feasts and the festivals there, whether it was a weekend or a week, sometimes even a month, we would go with our family and we would fellowship together as a big group. But in our day-to-day living, we would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And Jesus was a law abiding. He was a faithful Jew. And so he would, every Sabbath, he would go with his family to their synagogue and they would read the scriptures together. They would read from the Torah and they would read from the prophets, the law and the prophets. And the the rabbi would then teach a lesson based upon those two scriptures that are tied together. And that had been happening for generations. And so Jesus was actually a Galilean. And we understand that Galilean, rabbis in jesus day were actually some of the most scholarly, and so they were they were phenomenal teachers of the Torah and of the Nabim, the prophets together and they would they would be able to show these Nuances of the words in the Torah and the Navim, they would tie them together and be able to explain the scripture. And so they're known for being great teachers. And so Jesus grew up in that kind of a context. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that here God is the one that has given us this idea of church and we see it play out throughout the history of the Old Testament. And Jesus is living it as he is in the synagogue on a regular basis. And then he would go with his family to Jerusalem and they would experience the feast together. And all of these different religions Religious things were essential to their community of faith, but also the community where they were at, and also the community of the family. And one of the most important places of worship for Jewish people was the dining table within the home. As a matter of fact, most of them didn't even have dining tables. It was just kind of their living area. And they would they would set the food in there, and in the evening it was a gathering place for the family to gather around, and they would tell stories, and they would talk about Scripture. It was an opportunity for mom and dad and and all the kids to gather around the dining table, and they would call it the dining table of God. We're gathering around, and we're going to worship together over the food. So it should be no surprise to us then, in that kind of backdrop, in that kind of a setting, that Jesus, as he's wrapping up his time with his disciples, he has this moment with the disciples. Remember, he's taken them up to Caesarea Philippi, and he's at the gate of Hades. And he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and the disciples say, well, some say this, some say that. And then he says, but who do you, you guys that have been hanging around me now for three years, who do you say that I am? And on behalf of the disciples, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he confessed. Who God was, who Jesus was. And Jesus says, listen, Peter, that did not come from human mind. That came from the spirit of God letting you know that who I am. And he said, Peter, upon this confession, a confession like this, that you are Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Upon confessions like that, I will build my church. Right? Peter you're a rock, but I'm going to build on the big rock of this confession. And upon those type of confessions, I will build my church. Each time each one of us say yes to Jesus through that confession, we become a stone, a living stone and establishes the church of God. And so all throughout history since Peter's confession and the confessions of his disciples. There have been stones established. And so the church of God, you can see it's. You can see the building of God from Peter's confession even to now. Each one of us, this is one of the reasons we gave you name tags today. This one is so that you can know that God calls you by name and he knows you by name intimately. And that, yes, you are an individual, but he doesn't call you to be an individual in faith. He calls you to a community of faith. And as we grow together, each one of us, our name tags remind us of the fact that you're called to faith. God called you by name out because he knows you and he loves you. And he's also established you as a living stone within his church. And so his larger universal church that we there's. Living stones all over the world right now that are worshiping the same God, the same Jesus that we have and confess the same things. But even here, we are the local church here at Crosspoint. If you call Crosspoint your church home, you're a stone here in the building, not this, but in the building of what we are and how people view us as followers of Jesus in this community. They see us as the church here at Crosspoint. And so Peter, upon those type of confessions, the church is established. I think even the the most simplest way that you can understand what a church is, is in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, hey listen, wherever two or three get together, there's gonna be disagreement. Is that right? Yeah, wherever two or three get together, there's somebody's not going to like the color of that carpet or that paint, or they're not going to like this, or they're not going to like that. So he says, listen, in the church, there's going to be disagreements because there's imperfect people involved. And so I want you to know how to deal with relationships. But at the end of that passage in Matthew chapter 18, he says, in the midst of the difficulties, I want you to be reminded of this important truth. Is when you gather together as living stones called out by name, when two or three of you gather together, even that, when you gather together in my name, is a church. So when you see two or three ladies at Latte having coffee that proclaim the name of Jesus, that's church. When you see 25 guys at breakfast over messy bacon and eggs talking about Jesus... That's church. That's just as much church as this is church. And so it also is like when two or three teachers are talking in school, that's church. Because they're, they're, talking about from faith you can't be removed from your faith even though you're teaching and you're in a public school as you're gathering around and you're talking about students how you can encourage them and motivate them that's three believing teachers that are praying and saying our goal is to build up students in life and faith that is church When two or three people get together and they coach softball or baseball or basketball or whatever, and there are two or three there, and the reason that they're there is for their kids but also for the other kids, and they talk about how they can improve these children, not just as basketball players or as skill, but as people, that's church. Where two or three are gathered in my name, church breaks out. So who is part of a church? Jesus has this interesting word called ekklesia, ek, called out, that we are the called out ones, that we have professed, it's this idea where Jesus went to Lazarus and he said, Lazarus, come from death to life, and he had to say Lazarus, why? Because if he said, hey, you guys... Come out, everybody that was dead would have come out. So he calls us by name from death to life, Ecclesia, And all of us that have been called from death to life by name have our living stones, but also we're the called out. Why are we called out? To be set apart, to be made holy. And a part of that is us together. Iron sharpening iron to become holy and righteous, not in our own works, but as we point each other to Jesus and and we slough off the things that are not life-giving as we move closer and closer to Jesus. You can even see it in Acts chapter 2. We're going to get in Acts chapter 2 verse 41 in just a minute, but here's what it says. Here's the thing that kind of means calling out this belief, right? So in Acts chapter 2 verse 41, it says, those who believed... What Peter said were what? Baptized. And then immediately they were added to the church that day. Verse 8. There's this guy named Philip, and Philip's been traveling around and um, been teaching different people because the church has been dispersed. Because the church is growing rapidly, they ended up being dispersed early on. And so Philip um, was actually a deacon, and he went and he began to share the gospel in Samaria. And uh, y'all remember the woman at the well? So he's in that place, and they were ostracized, okay? And so this this is new stuff, is that originally... Many of the new believers were Jews, and they thought the gospel was for them. And so as this began to spread out, they were shocked that the gospel was going past them. And so here's this guy, Philip, a deacon, preaching in Samaria. And we'll listen to this. The people, the Samaritans, and even Simon the sorcerer, believed Philip's message of the good news. Concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result, many of the men and women were baptized. Belief and baptism. You can see God calling people out to community. But based upon their belief in what who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, they confess it. And then they believe, they become a part of a community, and they're baptized upon that faith and that expression. Baptism is what identifies us with Christ in the community. Here, what we saw this morning, that doesn't save you. What we'd call save. What it does is it's an outward expression of the decision and the confession you've made inwardly. And you're identifying with the community here saying, hey, listen, I'm with you. I wear the same jersey now as you do. We're on the same team, Team Jesus. So if you're baptized as an infant, by your parents, they're committing you to faith. They're committing and saying, hey, listen, we're going to raise you in a Christian home as best we can. We want to raise you particularly in that church community. They're going to, together, we're going to help raise you a village it takes to raise a child in the faith. But scripturally, as we see upon belief, baptism happens. So it's a different baptism. The baptism that we're talking about here scripturally is one believes, professes Jesus, confesses, and then upon that confession, then individually owns their faith and they're baptized and they join the community based upon that. In John 15:8, it even says, when you produce much fruit, you are truly my disciples. When you produce much fruit, you're truly my disciples. One of the questions that I get all the time is sometimes all the time is, How do I know that I'm a believer? How do I know that I know Jesus? How do I know that Jesus is making a difference in my life? And I say, well, let's look at Scripture. Scripture says your life is like a tree. And if your life is like a tree, a tree produces what? Fruit. So do you see in your life, in your tree of life, do you see fruit being produced? What is that fruit? Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Gentleness, these are all fruits of the spirit that he grants us that are produced that we can't produce on our own consistently. And that if we're growing in our patience, if we're growing in our gentleness, all of these things are characteristics of God that we begin to take on as we, as the tree planted, are we let our roots soak, soak, soak up the living water of God. And that's our sustenance. That's our source of life. And through that, fruit is being produced. That's how you know that you're living out and God's transforming you. And that there's moments where you're walking in a certain direction and all of a sudden you realize, hey, listen, the red flags are going off. And you're saying, "I'm." you realize that you are moving away from God and not toward him. And so you stop in those moments and come back. You repent and you come back toward God. There's another idea that if you're disciplined, if your father doesn't discipline you, then he doesn't love you. That also means that he's probably not your father. So let's just imagine with me. Let's go to Walmart together. You've seen a child act up. And a child that's near their parents, they're throwing a fit. You know who the parent, or what we think, right? We think we know who the parent is because of the parent is acknowledging that their child is having a fit or having a moment. And then everyone else that's looking at it but walking by, we assume that they're not the parent. This is that scriptural principle. If you're your daddy's, he's gonna discipline you. He's not gonna be unconcerned. If you're a child of the father, he will discipline you and you will know it. There will be moments where you'll be like, God, why are you? And many times when we ask that question, God, why is this? Or why are you doing this? It's like, hey, listen, it's because I love you. There's some discipline involved in this situation. Is there fruit from your tree? Are you being disciplined? Do you recognize that there's moments that you're going in a different direction than what God has for you? So then what is a church church? What is a church? I'm going to give you three real quick, three big picture ideas from the New Testament. One is this, is that we're a body. Paul tells us that Christ is the head. He's the mind. He's the motivation. He's the character of the church. And then we are, as the body, we are different parts of it. And so some of us are the hands. Some of us are the feet. Some of us are the kneecaps. Some of us are the ears. Some of us are the eyes. Some of us are the mouth. Each one of us has different skills, but more importantly, we have different gifts. And so God has put us together as a body to move together, allowed and motivated by and guided by the mind of Christ. He's the one that ultimately even allows us to interpret what we see. He allows us to interpret what we hear and we move forward with the mind of Christ. But it's his body. He's the one that moves us. The other illustration that the scripture gives us is that we're the building of God, which we've talked about that. Once you confess, you become a stone and there's living stones that are built. And scripture tells us that he's the chief cornerstone. Now I'm not a builder. I'm not an architect, but here's what I do know is there is, especially in the old days, there was a cornerstone that was built and established. It was a big stone and it was set and it was established. And from that plum was set. Everything was built off of that stone. And he's the plumb line of righteousness. He's the plumb line of judgment. Everything is built upon him. And so for us to be living stones, he's the chief cornerstone. And from Peter's confession, every other stone has been placed upon that. And so we are made righteous. We're plumb. We know all that because the chief cornerstone is righteousness. We stand on his righteousness. We stand on his plumb line, not our own. Another picture that the scripture gives us is that we're the bride of Christ, is that he is the groom and we are the bride. And as it talks about this idea of the bride, is that, is that we as the bride, we are being made holy, we're being prepared for our wedding day. He's established a covenant, he's paid a bride price for us. And that bride price for us is his life. And he therefore then establishes a covenant. And so he's preparing us for our wedding day. And that he's, we're all of this time is preparation for that. And that's why marriage is an important part of the illustration all throughout scripture and even today is our marriages are a symbol of what can be. That whenever my wife and I stood together at the altar, we made a covenant together that we would would love each other, that we'd care for each other in sickness and in health and all those other fun things that we say. And there's been days that she looked at me and said, "I I don't know that I want to do that. But you choose to do that anyway. And that's because of this covenant that we've established together before God, and that God has established a covenant for us. And that sometimes in our humanness... One of the things that we want to do, and we've even seen it done, and we've, maybe we've been a part of it, is there are times where we remove that covenant and say, I don't want that covenant or whatever that may be. But God says to us, I will never not want to be in covenant with you. That He hasn't just entered into a business exchange. It's contrary to His character to enter into a covenant and that our dirtiness, our massiness, our unfaithfulness will never want, never Make him leave us. We can never become unlovely enough for him. That's the beautiful part of the body body of Christ. You can even see that in the story of the prophet Hosea is that Hosea's wife continually was unfaithful to him and he continued to go back and pursue her. That's our story is that we're continually unfaithful to our groom and he continues to pursue us. He's actually, he's jealous for our affections. It's a righteous jealousy for our affections. He knows that when we place our affections on anything and anyone else other than him, it's a false God. It's, it's not going to provide what we can fully have. It's not life to the full. We can only find life to the full when we are in relationship with him and our affections are for him and him alone. That's the body of Christ. So, how was the early church established you You know a little bit about it. I mean, Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he was resurrected. He hung around for forty days after his resurrection and after that and then in those forty days, he showed up in different places and he ate with his disciples, he talked with his disciples, and all that was important for them and for us is because we know that Jesus wasn't a ghost he was Physically resurrected, and that you could see the scars and all that. That's important to know that his he was physically still God after the resurrection, and he showed up several times and he pastored his pastored his congregation. Even one time he showed up to a congregation of over five hundred. Five hundred people got to see and hear and and touch the physically resurrected Jesus. So if, if in a court of law, if there were five hundred witnesses, you you would win, right? And so that's a part of our testimony. And then he told his disciples, after that 40 days, at the end of the 40 days, he told his disciples, hey, go away for a little bit. I want you to pray because I'm leaving you, but the Holy Spirit is coming. And when he comes, he's going to empower you to do and be the church, the New Testament church. And after 10 days, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit showed up. And when the Holy Spirit showed up to the disciples in that room, there were about 120 or so of disciples and all those people together in a room. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, they began to speak in tongues that were not their natural tongues and people began to understand. Now that's a whole different sermon on what speaking in tongues is and how that works. But speaking in tongues in that moment is that God empowered people so that they could speak in tongues and people from all over different nations and different tribes and tongues could hear the gospel in their tongue. OK, and so you have to think about people have come in just like Jesus went for festivals in Jerusalem. All these other people from around are now in in the city of Jerusalem. It's Passover. It's the festival of unloved bread. All these different things are going on. And so they're there for that moment. And at Pentecost, there are people gathered around. And here come these disciples and they're sharing the gospel in their tongue and their hearts are pricked. Their minds are, are beginning to draw interest into the gospel and the good news. And so in that day, we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we're gonna read those passages together. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, and even before that, Peter preaches the first sermon, and people's lives are transformed. And they begin to say, What do we need to do? Peter, we hear what you say. We're convicted by your message. What do we need to do in response to that? And he says, Repent and be baptized. Here it says in verse 41. So those who believed what Peter said, remember belief. They were what? They were baptized. And then they were added to the church that day. There were about 3,000 of them in all. All the believers, so all those in verse 41, verse 42, all those believers then began to do what? Devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now that word devote is a fun word. It's a powerful word. It means that they stubbornly continued... This course of action that they're about to, we're about to talk about, they stubbornly continued this course of action despite any difficulty, despite any delay, despite any opposition, despite any failure. In other words, they so believed the message that they were stubborn about what they were going to do next. And so what are the things that they did next? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the apostles teaching was what? It was based on Jesus. So all the things that the apostles had learned over the last three and a half years, they had, they were gathering that stuff. And as the scripture tells us, the Holy Spirit reminded them of all the things that Jesus had told them and it became even fuller for them. And so they were teaching those things to the early church. Matthew even 28, Jesus says, Hey, teach the things I taught you to the new disciples. They were devoted to the teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. And if you've been around church long enough, maybe you've heard this word, koinonia, and it's this koinonia fellowship. It's a fellowship that's surrounded around a shared experience, but also there's this inability to remove accountability from it. So when we're in true fellowship together like this in koinonia, there's an accountability piece. There's a a knowing each other by name and still loving each other, which sometimes if we get to know each other, sometimes it's hard, right? There's actually a, a book about that, of, of hey, everybody's normal till you get to know them. Like, seriously, that's that's a, I think it's a John Ortberg book. Am I right? I think. Anyway, so everybody's normal. You think, oh, yeah, they, they look normal, and then from far away, and then you get close, and you're like, mm, they're a little quirky. They're a little nerdy. You know, whatever it may be um, that you spot. But that's the beautiful thing about our fellowship. It's not about those other things. We gather together in fellowship, koinonia fellowship, because of our shared experience in Christ, That's our bond. It's an unbreakable bond because it's the bond built on Christ. And so it can't be shaken because of that. But it also, because of that, there's an accountability. There's a depth of relationship that other relationships can be torn apart because of there's some quirkiness about whatever. But because we're drawn together in Christ, we're accountable to one another, unlike other relationships. It's a different type of fellowship. Also, where they devoted devoted themselves not only to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, but also to sharing in meals. In other words, they were Baptists. They liked meals. They liked to eat. It was potluck every day. They had a potluck meal, and um, I mean, they they were they were they were religious people. I mean, listen, yeah. And so anyway, so they shared in meals, including the Lord's supper. In other words, they liked hanging out together. And then they did also they would pray. They believed prayer mattered. And again, remember that most of these, if not all of these, early followers of Jesus had Judaism as their background. And a big part of their Jewish faith was they had daily prayers that they would recite and that were essential to their, to their faith and also to their mealtime. Anytime they would gather, prayer was a big part of that. Even the Shema, which is uh, Shema that you hear, that is actually a prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one and and everything. That is a prayer that they would every single day as they leave their house, it's on their doorpost, they would touch it and they would touch their lips and they offer it up as a prayer, a reminder of who God is and who they are. Verse 43, and because of all these things happening, there was a deep sense of awe that came over them, a reverence, a deep sense of, man, God is... Who God is, and He's doing something miraculous in our midst. And so, that was part of that: was the fellowship and the koinonia and the teaching. But also that the apostles were performing miracles and signs and wonders, and 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 that's another part where miracles and and wonders are. It's the beginning of the gospel, and lives are transformed, and and speaking in tongues and stuff like that happens. In verse forty-four, what? Who is it? All the believers met together in one place. And they shared everything they had. They sold their property and their possessions and they shared money with those in need. You have to understand, again, again, Jewish. the Jewish context is every Jew was giving, required to give 10% of their income, or 10% of however they were making money. And so that was their first fruits. Their first fruits offering was the first 10%. And so some of you have grown up in church, you've heard it called a tithe, right? So they would give their first fruits. And so they didn't give seconds, they didn't give thirds, they gave the first fruits. And then after the first fruits, everything else was theirs. And so they'd be doing that. And so in this context, they're already giving their first. Fruits, but then they saw somebody in need in their congregation that they cared for, and God put it on their heart, and in response to that, if they had the ability, they would bring extra, they would bring an offering to that so they could meet some of those needs. Now, in Jewish teaching, they would very, very rarely go over twenty percent. Okay? So if they'll say they made a hundred dollars a week, they would be giving ten dollars a week in a tithe and then an offering for them would be, hey, at max an offering would be another ten percent, because you can't ruin your own household and belabor your own household to care for others as well. You've got it. There's a, a, practical common sense even to those things. And so they were giving above and beyond. And, um, let me pull back the curtain. Um, nonprofits today are struggling. Churches are struggling with giving. We, y'all are generous here. We love it. Um, we're able to do a lot of great things. And, um, in the, in the days past, people have homes have given seven, eight, nine, ten percent of their of their income. Now, um, on average, it's like two point one percent. And so you can again, that uh, shows a little bit of our generosity, shows a little bit of our community as a whole. I'm not saying that that's true here, but I'm saying that that's true in other places where generosity and, and community has gone. We've we begin to um, more is more of it's mine than ours. Does that make sense? But that was very much a part of their culture: is, is, hey, we we are we are in this together, and even um, God had even established um, a, a rule for them that we don't know if they ever followed it, but there was a rule called the year of jubilee where they would actually, after 50 years, if they had bought something from someone and and they actually paid less than what it was worth of value, that after 50 years they would give it back to them. Um, so if you bought someone bought land from you and it was valued at a million and they were able to because you were in stress, they bought it from you for for five hundred thousand. After fifty years, you were required to to give it back, which is an interesting concept of generosity. But um, I, if any of you have land that you think I bought from you a long time ago, feel free to let me know. All right, but all the believers met together in one place and and there was this, this outer court or this outer temple in verse 46, they worshiped together at this outer court. And, and and so they're at the temple and at the temple, there's an outer court where everyone can gather. So if you're a woman, a man, a Jew, a Gentile, everyone can go there and they can worship together. But if you, as you get closer to the Holy of Holies, there's other courts. And so there's the outer court, there's an inner court where the Jewish women can be. And then there's another inner court where Jewish men can be And then there's another inner court where the priests and and all of them can be. And then there's the Holy of Holies. And so you can see this, how they would believe that, hey, if you meet certain things, requirements, that it makes you closer to God. And so one of the beautiful things about the gospel, one of the beautiful things about the good news of Jesus that we see in the New Testament is that those walls have been removed. And so that's why even in the early church, they all gathered together in the outer courts and they worshiped together. Jew, Gentile, woman, man, they all worshiped together. To celebrate that those walls are turned down and then they would go to their homes in even deeper fellowship in these quininea meals together in the Lord's Supper together. And homes in those days um, were commonly called bet which means my father's house. And so you would gather at your father's house, which has spiritual <laughs> connotations to it, right? We're going to go to the father's house because the father's house, multiple generations would be that and they would build their house kind of in a square and they would have a a center court and they would gather together in community. Even today, you'll see it, uh, multiple generations, they'll build level upon level upon level and they never finish the house. So if you go to the Middle East, they'll have a five-story house and you're like, man, they're really wealthy. You're like, well, not really. That's grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, brother, brother. Whatever, and they just keep building, and they never finish because there's a whole other reason, but there's, their family will continue to grow. We're coming to the father's house together. And so not only is just this family, but the larger family as well. So they met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. That word uh, generosity also has this idea of sincerity, that they shared. There was a sincerity and that, that word. I don't know in the old days. if y'all, Any of you all ever written a letter before? Yeah. Y'all remember those things like pen and ink, right? And, um, there was a day like that you would even like you would sign off. Like before you put your name, you would say sincerely. Y'all remember that? Sincerely. Well, that terminology sincerely means literally without wax. And so the idea behind that, it's an old word for that was used in the marketplace. And so someone who was owned a market, they would be having their little um, pottery and different things like that. And if a piece of pottery, especially if it was valuable, fell and broke, oh no, now it's worth nothing. right? And so a good businessman would gather all the parts together and they would take wax and they would piece it together in such a way that the broken would look new. And they would sell it as a new product. And so here what the author is reminding us of is that when we gather together in fellowship and we're sincere with one another, we are doing life together without wax. There's no pretense that we've put together and everything is perfectly okay. We come together as broken people. In our sincerity, we're okay with that, that that's what true Christian biblical fellowship is, is that our sincerity is we're without wax, We come together as broken people needing healing, but not pretending that we've got it all together. That's community. With great joy and sincerity, they shared their meals together, all the while praising God and fellowshipping and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. People looked upon the church in Jerusalem and said, we want to be a part of a community like that that's without Wax and miracles were happening. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. That's the church. This is the church. You are part of the church. My prayer is here at Crosspoint. Is that we don't forsake the assembling together. When we're around town that we come together in the church. And that we're excited to see our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that we come together without wax. Wax. And sincerity, that we come together as a people that are bleeding and know that we're bleeding. A people that know that we're broken. And that God puts us back together. And he's the wax that puts our life together. But we don't have to come together in any pretense of, hey, I'm fine. I'm perfect. We can come together and say, hey, listen, my name is Chris. And I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. And this week there were some good days. And this week there were some bad days. There was a day this week that I was I didn't love my wife well. There was a day this week that I wasn't a good boss or a good employee. There were those moments. And for us to come together and say, hey, to expect, listen to this, to expect sinners to sin. As we grow into our new identity in Christ. That every day that we're in Christ, more and more the tree of our life should produce fruit that looks and tastes like the fruit of God. And less like the stinky old fruit that we used to produce. I'm reading a book right now called Why Can't the Church Be More Like an AA Meeting. (laughs) You laugh. It's a book that my daughter actually gave to me. (sighs) She went to a (laughs) Christian school. It used to be Christian, I guess. I don't even, they've renounced that. Um it used to actually be a Presbyterian cemetery cemetery <laughs> that too Presbyterian seminary and woodrow wilson 's dad was the president of the seminary okay it was a, a well established well renowned seminary and just recently the school has renounced their Presbyterian roots and um, i 'll share more about that next week actually. I have a great story for you there. But um, so my daughter, you know, as a part of a religious school, you have to take classes. I have a son that's a religious school, and he has to take classes and um, religious classes. And so you have to take so many. One day, my daughter called me, and she says, Dad, I've got to take X amount of classes, and it just takes two more to get a minor. Can I just, what do you think? And I was like, just go for it. And um, and one of the things that we discussed during this whole time is that she took quite a few hours on that. And um, without passing judgment, pretty sure. From the things that her and her, dis- her professors talked about, only one of her professors was, I would say, is a confessing Christian. So they're teaching religion classes with, like, the Old Testaments, fables, all these different things. So it's a, it's a great way to, if you're not strong in your faith, it's going to challenge you. If you're strong in your faith, it's going to challenge you. Um, and so my daughter took those classes. We have great conversations. But one of our last classes was with a guy who wrote this, who's, who actually came to Jesus in the Jesus movement. And at a certain time, as he um, began to move away from his faith, and then um, in a moment where he's like, listen, I need to, I, I'm, I'm need to recover from an addiction, began going to AA meetings and refound his faith. Okay. And so one of his questions is for himself is that, that. The church kind of pushed him away um, where the AA group brought him in and received him. And so he began to to discuss this and think about it and research it. And so um, he had several different quotes. I'm going to share one quote with you and um, another thought that he had as we close our time together thinking about church. His name is is Hayes. His last name is Hayes. And the, the book is Why Can't Church Be More Like an AA Meeting. It says this, Imagine a church without a dress code. We check that, okay? We're good. Where strangers hug each other. We do that sometimes, you know, depending. I mean, sometimes people are like, you know. That's why we have the coffee cup here. That's our little deal. Like, you hold that, and we're like, we know. You don't like people, and you don't like hugs. We're okay with that. Like, like you can come this close. We can tap coffee cups, and that's a hug, all right? We got that. (laughs) And making, listen, I've got a lot of coffee cups, right? And so, when strangers hug each other and... People make you feel as if you're home, where they acknowledge there's an acknowledgement of your deepest struggles is met with a yeah, I, I understand that, and we're an, a mindset of we're all in this together. Imagine a church where people can openly admit we're all bleeding, and we're all in a struggle together. However, too many times churches are more like real-world versions of Facebook. We project screens of an idealized version of ourselves, and we're in this unspoken competition with each other. That we're doing the same thing, and we're curating and and consuming images designed to show that we're all fine, and that everything's great. Man, I wish church was more like an AA meeting, where sinners can be okay being a sinner. Listen, I mean, that's one of the things that even my daughter had to, had to go, go to different meetings and stuff. And she said, Dad, she goes, the thing that, that struck me, the deepest chord in me is that I was welcome. They assumed I was broken before they even heard my story. Yeah. And I think that's church. That should be church. But I mean, we say imperfect people are, are allowed here because we're all imperfect. But it's that assumption that you're broken. And that your tendency throughout the week is to put wax on your life to pretend that everything is fine. That this is the one place that we can gather and be without wax. That when we assume that you're going to fail. Because I failed this week. It shouldn't surprise us. Let's draw each other in and say, hey, let's live life together here today without wax. Let's pray together. Father, may we live life without wax father may we show a broken world that we can be broken and we don't have to pretend to put our life together to make ourselves look good to others because we've been called by name by jesus and then my identity is not a broken vessel but it's a vessel that's once was for unholy things is for holy things That, Father, I've been called out by name, and I'm a living stone in the building of God. That, Father, I may be a pinky toe, but I'm a pinky toe in the body of Christ. That, Father, that I'm a bride to the most perfect groom. That his affections are for me and for me alone. That he draws me in. That he paid the bride price that no one else could pay by giving his life as a sacrifice for mine. And Father, that everything that this, this groom does makes me holy. And it lifts me up, not in my own righteousness, but in his. And that one day the veil of my face will be lifted up and I will be made right, and declared righteousness, righteous because of how he has loved me and prepared me to meet my father in heaven, that the radiance of my beauty will be his beauty, that the Shekinah glory that radiates off my face will be his glory. Like the beauty and radiance of a bride on her wedding day when she lifts the veil and everyone sees the radiance of her beauty, the hope and the expectations of a life long lived together. That, Father, that is our view today. That we are your bride and we have great hope and expectations. And we know that we know that we know because Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. That his affections are for us and us alone. And so, Father, we declare that we desire that every day our affections are for you. But we do know, because we're human, there's going to be days where we fail. But, Father, we know that you continually pursue us and bring us back to your dining table. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name that we pray. As your church, we say amen. Thank you for joining us for the Cross Point Community Church podcast. It is our prayer that this message was encouraging to you as you follow Jesus. For more about Cross Point Community Church, you can find us online at crosspointchurchtx.org. Have a great week.